planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? Side chatters, you might remember not long ago we had a chat with Shaman Janir, a plus member who contacted me about several scientific loose ends with previous THC guests that he felt he could tie together with a deep explanation of ether theory. We talked a lot about alchemy, the expanding hollow earth, the electric universe, the Sonora Aero Club, and a whole lot more in a higher side episode a lot of people seem to thoroughly enjoy, but we also left a lot on the table in that conversation, so I figured it was time to bring them back. In fact, we've decided to do a little elemental series of chats, and since our last one was largely about Ormus, space, and airships, we'll refer to it as the air episode, and today we're going to discuss ether in relationship to Earth by getting deep into the state of shamanjaneered abundance and the advanced permaculture practices that the Native Americans had cultivated, because labels like hunter-gatherers just don't do them justice. But we're also going to talk about healing plants, the role of the Great Spirit, their animist outlook, and the fact that you don't need a huge over-the-top harp antenna array when you got your rain dance down. There's a lot left unknown about America before the colonialists arrived, and a lot that could help us today if we stop to realize the Western way isn't the only way. A man who's worked for over a decade in high-level industries such as robotics, chemical systems, and alternative energy, and has been researching weird related threads even longer in our second conversation as we work through the powers of the Captain Planet team, my friend and yours, Shaman Janir, welcome back to THC. <laughs> Captain Planet, he's our <laughs> hero. <laughs> Digging deep on uh, that reference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm pumped, man. I think this is going to be awesome. You bring up some interesting ideas I don't hear about nearly enough from the big names in alternative research, and you're so great about actually having sources that strengthen the various cases you come here to make. So I am all about it. And I suppose the best entry point here is the state that the Europeans found America in when they got here. It's quite different than someone might expect, but I'm also curious how this became of interest to you when so many people just take it for granted that things were largely the same without the buildings. So maybe tell us how this subject got on your radar and how we should start to reframe pre-colonialist America. Well, growing up, I was always kind of drawn to Native American outlook. And I I was, I mean, this is kind of a silly thing, but, you know, I was part of the YMCA and Indian Guides as a kid. All right. So... I kind of got introduced a little bit to like Native American culture there. And I, I actually met a few Native Americans through it. But, you know, making best set of vinyl isn't quite the same as tanning them and stuff like that. So, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Actually, that's kind of a good analogy to what our, you know, our land practices in terms of conservation and preservation are in, on the, uh, the national parks. Because... It's kind of an imitation to some degree, like for so long, things were so suppressed that as practices are kind of being introduced, it isn't really the full on cultivation of the landscape that used to be when the Native Americans were doing it. 
Mm-hmm. So the way that the parks are managed, it, it hasn't produced the same landscape that was here when the Europeans arrived. Hmm. It's actually a, a very different landscape. It's choked with underbrush that's all dead and things like that. There's there's a lot of nutrients and energy that's bound up in that material. Right. So if, if that had been released periodically through burning, it would have resulted in a much more verdant landscape. Mm-hmm. I've heard people talk about that is exactly why California has these huge wildfire problems is because there is a process there that we typically kind of nerf. And then it just when it actually does flare up, it's like having it on steroids. That That's it. Basically, yeah. I mean, the thing is that the way the wildfire system is managed today is, you know, suppression primarily. Mm-hmm. There's there's a few controlled burns here and there, but it isn't it isn't mainly controlled burns. It's it's mainly suppression. And when you do that, you end up locking up a lot of the nutrients in the landscape. So, I mean, even without all the other things that we've done to damage our landscape and damage our wildlife, just the fact that we we haven't allowed it to be in its most abundant configuration means that there's a lot of life that just can't reach above a certain threshold and we're we're seeing a lot of a lot of different forms of life being choked out because of it. Hmm. See I mean yeah that's really interesting because I've kind of thought of the national parks as almost like more of a history museum like oh this is how it looked or our best glimpse at how it looked before the western civilization took over but uh, I guess give us a little more about the actual conditions when the colonialists did arrive. What were the Native Americans doing to actually engineer abundance and how different did it really look? Well, you might want to edit around this a bit because I'm going to read a few a few passages. Absolutely. Okay. Early European explorers and settlers were universally impressed, not just by California's diversity, but also the sheer abundance of its wildlife. Jean Francisco de Galoupe, Comte de la Brois, a French seafarer, described California in 1786 is a land of inexpressible fertility. <laughs> inexpressible fertility. That's a great term, I gotta say. Here, I'll, I'll go with another example. So, Thomas Jefferson Mayfield, a white man who came to live with the Choinumi Yokuts in the San Joaquin Valley in the 1850s, when just a boy, vividly described this overflowing abundance of wildlife. Thousands of band-tailed pigeons came in flights that would sometimes shut out the sun like a cloud. They piled into the nearest trees where there was not a single place for another pigeon to sit. So, I mean, we don't see anything like that today. No, no, we don't. (laughs) The rivers and the streams, I mean, they just aren't as abundant as they used to be. All sorts of natural sources of water springs have dried up. And, you know, a a lot of that has to do with the way that we manage the landscape just overall, shutting out, you know, the land from being able to absorb water with our concrete and asphalt everywhere and things like that. You know, I mean, what what we call water management is really just just basically turning it into effluent, Mm -hmm. you know, and then just dumping that out to sea. And I mean, even when we do recover things from it and we do treat it in terms of its energetics the water's lost a lot right it may be chemically fit for consumption but in terms of the water structure and things like that it's not it's not the same thing as it was 
Mm-hmm. And even the fit for consumption thing is debatable because of fluoride and pharmaceuticals and rusty pipes and fracking. But I know what you're saying about the energetic properties of water. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a future water-focused episode, but you've sent me several videos of people who've understood these properties and built devices to maximize the energetic properties of water with vortexes and really cool stuff. But I guess the larger point here is that we think of ourselves as so modern and advanced, but yet when it comes to understanding resources and how to get the most out of them, we're just wildly inefficient. We have a beat it into submission kind of approach, and it seems that our way is actually less technical and less advanced than when it was all just left to the quote-unquote savages. Yeah, I mean, the, the work of uh, Victor Schauberger shows distinctly that the natural water course has, has an effect on water quality. And I think that a lot of his water management principles should be integrated into forestry management and things like that. I, it is being done in places like Switzerland, actually. Hmm. So. Well, at least someone's on it. Uh, but I like that idea that nature is doing something to the water that when you dam it up or reroute it or stockpile it in silos, it just isn't the same. Maybe there is something to that. But to get back to just general abundance, in preparation for this, I watched some documentaries on pre-Western Settlers America, and it was pretty mind-blowing stuff. Just like you said, there were descriptions of flocks of birds so big they blocked out the sun. One report said they could see them flying at times from horizon to horizon. And uh, my favorite line here was that a squirrel could travel from the East Coast to the Mississippi River without touching the ground because the trees were just so plentiful. And wow, man, I mean, that is a pretty radical thought when you see the world we have today yeah here, here here's a really good example of that um salmon ran up the major river and creek from what is now smith river on the north of the camel river on the south swimming against the current to return near where they were born 31 coast and central valley rivers and hundreds of lesser creeks carried the lifeblood of millions upon millions of salmon and provided 6,000 miles of spawning habitat we have nothing close to that today Hmm. Joaquin Miller described the head of the Sacramento as a silver sheet because the salmon were so abundant. He had seen the stream so filled with salmon that it was impossible to force a horse across the current. A white man stated in the, in the early 1900s, you could load wagons with salmon that got stalled on the Mad River. As little slows near Arcata, you could get salmon with pitchforks and fork them onto the bank. So, <laughs> I mean, just when the Europeans arrived, they they were looking at this and they, you know, they saw it and they, they actually described these divine gardeners who had cultivated the landscape thinking that, Oh, well, this was just placed here by God for our manifest destiny and all this stuff. Right. It really does tie into that, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. I mean, the whole outlook on what was here was flavored by that. Because it was the church rhetoric and the church propaganda that was that was really driving people to feel like they needed to missionize and you know to basically destroy the cultures. Right. But when they came here, they saw all this abundance, and when they looked at what the people who lived here were doing, they said, oh, they're just they're diggers. They just dig in the ground <laughs> and root around and. They don't really contribute anything. They, they, they don't have to contribute anything to this because they just pluck it. Mm -hmm. 
they just pluck it from the trees and you know the, there's so many fish they just pluck them from the river and there's so many deer that they just throw a rock at it and it'll <laughs> fall down right <laughs> you know, that's kind of how they looked at it so they're like oh they're all lazy because they they've got so much of god's abundance they don't know what to do with it mm-hmm. so we're going to come here and we're going to make all this land productive that's the way they looked at it just like capitalism looks at anything that doesn't fit its own ends it looks at it as something to be exploited of course and so to focus on say the fish population how do we know that's something that was engineered instead of just random or the way just nature taking its course well i mean that that just spoke to the health of the water and you know i mean the, the thing is that there's a whole transpiration cycle that it isn't just dependent on rainfall falls and then you know water trickles down well the the, the water that goes into the ground actually gets pulled up by the roots of the plants, the, the, the deeper roots of the plants like the trees. And it helps to, to raise the water table. And, and it also has to do with temperature of the land as well. The colder it is, the, the more the water table will rise up and be accessible to plants. Right on. You know, the, just the, the health of the, the surrounding landscape helped increase the water that fell and fed the rivers. Mm-hmm. And also the, the snowpack wasn't as effective as today because the the temperatures are changing now what exactly the reason for that is you know there's there's a lot of debate there's definitely contributions from carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. but the models that are put forward by the ipcc don't take into account water vapor Hmm. which is the main heat transportation system of the world so (laughs) Seems, seems like it'd be important yeah how you know that might impact their models. Yeah, <laughs> it might. They also say, apparently, I mean, I can't verify this, but a lot of people are saying that all the planets are warming, not just the Earth. So that throws into question the human component. I mean, th- th- there is a definite effect from, you know, the, the the difference in wavelengths that are, you know, that carbon dioxide, methane and things like that, you know, allow out. And so there, there's there's definite effects yeah but if there's other effects that aren't being accounted for the mo- by the models which of course they aren't for sure then how correct are those models yeah. we don't really know it's just incomplete but in terms of in terms of should we stop burning fossil fuels absolutely it's yeah. horrible yeah it's it's toxic just overall it's toxic it's a bad idea right it's not a good idea to do so you know obviously we need to change our ways and I, you know, I don't support what Trump proposes of, you know, opening up the oil fields everywhere he can. And, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just look at the Standing Rock. And then there was an oil spill near there. Right. Where, um, you know, it spilled like hundreds of thousands of gallons of oil. That's just one of uh, over 200 in the last year. So. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things that upsets me about Trump the most. I'm glad the TPP is dead, but I am a little concerned about him going backwards in energy instead of forwards. Oh, he 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 just wants to hand the keys over to the to the, to the oil companies. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty obvious. Right on. So to to get back to Native Americans a little bit. Yes. Another thing that I had seen, I hadn't been able to share with you yet, but uh, it was talking about their hunting practices. And it wasn't just that they were... 
they weren't just hunting at random. They were finding out what these animals like to eat, planting it in strategic places, and then hunting them in that regard. So it wasn't like they had domesticated animals, quote unquote, but they definitely had a process of hunting that was way more skilled and intelligent and included way more foresight than we're led to believe. Well, definitely. I mean, they they knew the landscape. They knew how the land wanted to grow. They knew what plants should be in what locations and how how they should be cultivated and nurtured. They did a whole host of techniques to cultivate these plants. They would uh, the the primary one was fire. Actually, fire allowed them to keep down pests, to keep down diseases, to clear out old growth to um, stimulate new growth and it was easy to do you know you didn't have to apply it manually by hand everywhere you went you you just started it and made sure that you controlled it and you kept it under control typically that came about just from the fact of doing it periodically enough that didn't get out of control Mm -hmm. but once the fires were over basically they do that primarily in the fall because that way, the soil would have some time to absorb the nutrients. And then the next spring, all the growth would come back. And, you know, a lot of the plants wouldn't, wouldn't actually have actually died. It would have just been kind of pruned back by the fire. And there'd still be a living root bulb or there'd be some portion above the ground that would still be alive. And then it would all just grow out. Mm-hmm. And actually, the, the way that, that this acts is actually very similar to what I think the action was for the Philosopher's Stone in alchemy Hmm. when it comes to regeneration and life extension. Right. Because the thing is that there's there's these cells that are down at the nodes of the plants, and they're basically undifferentiated cells or stem cells. And these stem cells that are down at the base of the plant, that's the place where these new branches come out and that those new branches are the ones that the native Americans and also the wildlife want because it it actually grows back faster, grows back 1200% faster than normal growth. And it, it grows straighter. It doesn't have all these bends in it and all these branches coming off of it. And it actually resists pests quite a bit more it's basically what they use to make all their baskets to make their houses they they would they were using a kind of fire coppicing which is a very ancient technique it goes back to the neolithic so you know this has been known about for hundreds of thousands of years Mm -hmm. man i find this so fascinating (laughs) a lot more than a conversation about permaculture might suggest But I like this approach of getting the best out of each element, using them as tools in a type of synergistic way. And it seems like they really engineered actual abundance and wealth, not just a pile of green money in the bank. But we are relaying witness accounts from their day saying that flocks of birds blocked out the sun, that you can't even get a horse across the damn river because there's too many fish. You can pluck them out with a pitchfork. They also got their foliage unlocked too. But this is where a critic might say, well, you're giving these people a lot of credit, but maybe their situation was due to something like there being a far lower population at the time. That's why they had so much extra. 
So what would you say to that? Were there just fewer people here or is that a fallacy? Well, when you look at the more recent information, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the historical data was completely uh, on the low end. Right now, they're they're saying between 10 million and 100 million is what the estimates would be for North America. But I think it's closer to the high end and maybe even higher. Hmm. The thing is that there weren't really any accurate records. And, and a lot of the people who are developing those models, they were basing it off of accounts by people who didn't who weren't really interested in playing up their crimes to a degree. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> you know? So the estimates that are on the higher end seem to make more sense when you look at the degree to their impact that they had on the uh, on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Some of the more historical accounts rather than rather than the modeled accounts that came kind of in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. Right on. So the Native Americans, they had these controlled burns. They were seeing things grow back 1,200% faster. What else were the people doing to actually affect the environment around them? Well, they, they, would, they would cultivate the, the plants. They would do pruning as well as you know the fire. They would also do hand pruning like uh, between fire burnings. They would, uh, and that also helped to regenerate the plants. And they were doing a lot of digging because they were able, there's some plants that have tubers and little corms on them or ribosomes. And the more disturbance you give them, the the more they grow. Mm -hmm. And the more little branches or offshoots of plants or completely separate plants would break off and start growing. So by doing this cultivation, by giving them this disturbance, whether it be the disturbance of fire, the disturbance of pruning, the disturbance of uh, digging around the roots in a certain way to stimulate more growth, they were they were constantly working towards improving the productivity of the landscape. Hmm. And they would see, you know, I mean, landscape changes over time, and they would, as things changed, as you know, conditions changed, they would transplant different plants to different areas as they saw fit to help stimulate the health of that area. Mm -hmm. Like if they know that a a certain animal needed a plant, they would plant it there to help that animal and things like that. Hmm. And they also, they did have some big cities too, right? I mean, I know as you get into Mexico and Central America, you'll find their steppe pyramids, but even Cahokia in the middle of the Midwest was apparently a big city. So it's not just all animal skins and teepees, right? Well, I mean, that, that's that's actually some of the best estimates of what kind of populations are are coming starting to come out of South America because the thing is they did leave behind stone structures. You know, the thing with a lot of the Northern American tribes is that they didn't mm-hmm. leave behind permanent structures. There were some in the South, West, and things like that where they did. But yeah, in the Central and Southern American, I mean, in, in South America, they're starting to do later surveys with planes and they're finding that the buildings that are just overgrown that they've just thought has been jungle it's it's vast Mm -hmm. it's it's huge it's like if if i remember correctly it's something like 60 percent of the land mass of brazil is like (laughs) grown over 
cities. Damn. It's, it's crazy <laughs> how, how, how much there is down there that hasn't been looked at yet. Mm-hmm. They, they've, I mean, really, they've just kind of like barely scratched the surface by just doing LADAR so far. Mm-hmm. That, that just gives them an indication of what's there. But to, to actually, I mean, there's potentially hundreds of years worth of archaeology there. Mm, yeah, seems like there's a lot of lost threads waiting to be rediscovered there for sure. So to maybe move on from their actions and get more into their philosophy of being a part of the environment rather than mastering it or conquering it, obviously quite different than the Western approach. But what more can be said to help us try to understand their way or get into their headspace about these kind of things? Well, it was kind of a a use model. You know, like if you're using it and you're using it properly, you aren't aren't abusing it, then you're allowed to continue using it. Mm -hmm. But if other people need access to it, you're expected to give them to give them access. But, you know, I mean, reasonable, you know, it's like if you have, you know, a garden and you have some friends coming over and they want some lemons or some some peaches or whatever you have, you know, you, you could you could share it with them. No problem. I mean, m- most plants give more than enough for, you know, the, the people. If it's a single family, one tree can give them more than what they need for any any type of produce. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty to go around when people when people know how to share properly. Right. <laughs> well, that's interesting because we're sort of taught or shown depictions of these tribes as very warlike in most cases. And I'm sure that's exaggerated, but do we get any indication of what it was really like or if they had the issues of ego and typical human bickering descending into war with their neighbors versus some kind of peaceful coexistence in the land of abundance? Like, can you clarify things in this area for us at all? Well, in California, we have we have some of the best records of that because, um, you know, there were people out out exploring here before there was a lot of interference, like things things started to happen on the East Coast quite a bit quicker. But there's records of groups where basically if another tribe needs something, they would come and they would ask for permission to go onto the other tribe's land. And then the other tribe would either let them go onto their land or they would just gather what they wanted and provide it to them. So, um, and I mean, even when you, I'm sure you've heard of the term counting coup. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's basically a ritualized form of warfare. It's kind of like, you know, what what we think of as sports teams, Mm -hmm. but it was on more of a ritual level. So that was the preferential means of settling disputes was a ritualized warfare interesting but things could devolve from there and then you know there were also instances where there were power hungry chiefs who tried to rally everybody into a you know real war and killing a lot of people and sometimes they would just wake up one day and find that the entire village was gone right (laughs) (laughs) moved on overnight (laughs) yeah which is i think Something that perhaps we should do with our leaders at some point. Mm-hmm. Just kind of <laughs> and say, we don't need you. Fair enough. You know, the only real person I've heard talking a lot about pre-Columbian America is Graham Hancock when he talks about his War God series. And of course, that's a little su- more Southern. He's talking about the Aztecs. But he paints a picture of their culture as like, 
lining up thousands of slaves on the step pyramids who climb the top and lay down and get their hearts pulled out and eaten. I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> right, right. It just, you know, I, there, I don't know where the dividing lines were between Native Americans and that. Sure, every the culture day. is different, but you know, I mean, on the whole, I mean, there were definitely places where there were, there were more pressures on, um, <laughs> On them, but the the thing is that uh, I mean, in that case, it was there's there's some there's some talk of that possibly being due to you know drought and things like that. that They started to become so savage in the the way that they were dealing with the uh, with the hardship or the cultural discontinuity that was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I read about that when I was a kid. And it, it it scared me. I mean, it was it was really horrific what they did to people, right? You know, cutting their hearts out and things like that. I mean, but that does kind of get to the next little thing I was going to ask you about is the spiritual elements in all of this, and just the idea of a tighter connection to the earth and to the consciousness of the things in their environment, because that is, you know, when things are good, I'm curious what that relationship's like. But then it seems like when things are bad, that's when the whole society can go off the rails because you're trying to do everything you can think of to appease some God that you think has an influence on your environment. But as far as the native Americans and the great scapegoating is scapegoating is a, is a well-worn tradition. <laughs> it, is, it is. Amen. Um, but what can you say about the spiritual elements that you've studied as far as native Americans are concerned? Well, um, from, from, the things that I've read, it seems like they were interacting with the landscape. They were communicating with the spirits of the animals and the plants, and they were they were using the information that they got to develop their agricultural system. They would have visions of a certain herb to use for a certain condition, and then they would continue to use that. You know, if, if there, there was a certain plant or an animal that wasn't in abundance anymore, if it was found to be dying off they would try and have a spiritual vision to figure out what to do and what was wrong and this is actually something that comes up later in the findhorn community that was established in britain like i think it was the 1960s or 1970s and they were doing similar techniques they were basically in like sandy soil and i mean it was really just a horrible place to try and grow anything but this couple and I think a few of their friends just kind of settled there. And I mean, it was just dirt cheap land or something like that, <laughs> but they were also called to it. They said spiritually. So they, they settled there and tried to grow plants and they were, they were constantly, you know, meditating and trying to commune with, with um, spirits to help guide them in their, in their gardening. And before too long, I mean, the soil had improved because of the advice that they were given. They were growing just like show-stopping kind of vegetation and, and plants. I mean, it, it was the sort of things where they were they were growing things that were like two or three times what you'd see on a commercial farm. And this is in just the worst soil you can find. So. Yeah, man. I loved hearing about that garden or that community really interesting and it's a great case study for the benefits of developing some sort of relationship with local spirits or the consciousness of non-human things 
in that animist paradigm, I think there's something to it. And this is something that I got from Gordon White, but he graphs some cultures of the past by their complexity and stability, I think it is. And it does seem like ones that explored consciousness and developed a robust connection and reverence for the spirit world, they ranked higher. Egyptians, of course, were right near the top of the chart, but it just made, in my mind, a great case for the importance of this magical component in a culture And there does, or there did, at least, seem to be a connection between cultures who got tuned into these levels to take advice from the spirits and their successes to some degree. Well, I I think so. I mean, there's definitely something missing from modern society, and I think it is this realm of the spiritual to a large degree. I mean, even though there are, you know, rituals and things like that that are held in, in modern religion, a lot of them aren't really mystical. They aren't, they aren't the sort of thing that's meant to take you to another um, way of thinking. Right. It's meant to reinforce a certain doctrine. And if you if you read any of the the holy books of these religions, they all espouse that you know. Well, they come from this divine spark and this divine inspiration and this vision or this this uh, experience that someone had, but well, that's them, and, and and you're you, and never the twain shall meet. You mm. you can't have that experience because you aren't holy enough. Right. It's like, well, excuse me, I'm a human being as well, you know, <laughs> and and this isn't the only guy to have had these sorts of experiences, mm. you know. So, mm-hmm. I'm with you there, man. Cheers to that. And just to talk a little bit more about the Findhorn Garden because it is pretty cool. It does give us a more modern glimpse into the type of spirit communication approach that some of the Native American tribes had, right? I mean, is there anything more we can say about the parallels between the two and exactly what it was they were doing? Well, they were they were both trying to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. They were both trying to contact the spirits of certain plants to get insight in growing them. Mm-hmm. And they both seem to have had success with it. And I don't really, you know, see much evidence of Native American influence specifically at Pinhorn Garden. So it would be, it would just be another instance of a similar system having developed. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is what I was getting at is since we can't go back in time to see the undisturbed Native American situation, we can kind of look at the Finhorn Garden and see parallels to it working out for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they say about ayahuasca, like with the shamans in the Amazon, too, is they ask these shamans, how did you decide to put these two things together to mix it into this brew? And they say, well, the the plants told us. And, you know, in psychedelic uh, circles, a lot of people know that and kind of take that for granted. But why would you think it would only come into play with that vine and that plant? Why wouldn't you think it would happen with basically everything in the environment or everything biological? Well, I mean... um... With regard to ayahuasca, I, you know, I, I think it's like there's uh, over 110,000 plants they could have mixed that other plant with. And <laughs> right. The chances of it happening by, by chance are just astronomical. It would have taken way, way too long for them to just discover that by accident. Exactly. And I would assume that the same way they got that insight, they'd get insight about basically everything that they're around. Well, you know, it's like the the Buddhist lamas and just any religion that still has a mystical aspect, still has meditation as part of their 
practice or chanting or drumming or something that gets you into an altered state of consciousness. Yeah. These are the thing. I mean, some Native American tribes, they do the hanging with hooks thing that I, I'd rather not go there if I don't have to, but right. you know, that induces a trance and that causes you to go into an altered state of consciousness where you're able to commune with spirits and things like that. And I, I think basically it's because in that case, it's, it's such an extreme amount of pain that your, your conscious mind, it, it kind of shuts off, mm-hmm. you know, because it can't deal with it. Right. And so then you're, you're, you're basically, start delving into the lower parts of your mind mm-hmm. that you normally don't interact with. Yeah. And there clearly seems to be value in that because people come back with things that seem to work. And we were also going to talk a little bit more about uh, plants and healing. Cause of course a major slice of the conspiracy world is Rockefeller medicine and the widespread institution of chemical treatments rather than natural plant-based ones. And it's kind of to the point now that people completely dismiss the power of plants. You know, it's on a, kind of a joke to be uh, a naturalist. But what have you learned about this from the research that you've looked into Native American practices? Is there some real power there, you think? Oh, yeah. There's there's not much money. But <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that, you know, all these companies want something to patent. Of course. And you can't patent something that's already in the public realm. Now, if you can take this plant and you can genetically engineer it a little bit, hey, there we go. <laughs> I can patent that. I can, I can make money off of that. So. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that's that's the main main thing to prohibit things like that from getting too far off the ground. They they propagandized to all the doctors that this isn't this isn't something to look at. They, these aren't powerful enough. They aren't effective. You know, they have varying amounts of active ingredients and things like that and they, you know i mean they do they're they're natural mm-hmm. they have varying amounts of the ingredients but you can still test for things like that mm-hmm. so to say that you know it doesn't have any value that's that's very and i mean really what, what we get in terms of the, the pharmacopoeia of the pharmaceutical companies it's basically a single derivative it's an extract or or a chemical synthesis it's it's a new chemical that they just basically copied out of the natural world typically mm-hmm. or they tried to make something that was similar enough that would have a similar action and they could patent that so it's basically what they themselves are drawing upon when they when they make their their medicines it's just that a lot of these medicines aren't as harsh you know it's kind of like the difference between drinking beer or wine and drinking vodka or drinking <laughs> Yukon Jack. Right, <laughs> you know? right. It, it's a lot harsher on your body to drink the distilled stuff. And, you know, the way I think of pharmaceuticals is they're kind of like the distilled stuff rather than the brewed stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's it's something where I think that has a lot to do with why we have so many issues today is because, of, you know, they, they, they basically are only taking an aspect of what should be applied as a more holistic approach. Right. I agree with you there. And so what can be said, really, I guess, for the Native Americans, I guess, quote unquote, medical system, as opposed to ours? Do we know anything about their health before the colonials arrived? Do we know anything about their lifespans? Uh, How effective was their medicine for their way of life and their environment as opposed to, to ours? 
Well, I mean, there were some things that they were very good at, and then there were some things that they were not so good at. I mean, antibiotics are something that has been developed that they didn't really have a an analog for mm-hmm. to a large degree. I mean, there were things that could boost the immune system. There were things that could help fend off certain illnesses or deal with the symptoms. But, you know, something that, that actually went in and killed off certain organisms they didn't have, really. So that that's one major difference. But, you know, there's olive leaf extract and there's, you know, oil of oregano and things like that, which we know about, that have similar actions. The uh, olive leaf extract is actually the most effective of the uh, herbal antibiotic, antifungal, antiviral compounds that are out there. It's about 90% effective. So mm-hmm. that's that's really good. <laughs> yeah. So Man, do you think we could ever kind of get back to this? It seems actually somewhat difficult because if you consider all the plants and animals in the environment to be kind of crossroads for consciousness or ways to communicate with the great spirit as they might have called it or just whatever spirits of any kind it seems like it's kind of hard to get spiritual messages from animals or nature when we've destroyed it all like is it kind of like can we not go back well i mean you know the the findhorn garden would would say yeah they're ready to talk if we're ready to listen that's fair I mean, the thing is that I I think that if we're going to continue to live on this planet, we don't have any other choice. Mm -hmm. A lot of people aren't choosing to, or then a lot of them don't even know that that's an option. Right. The the most important thing is to try and get people aware of the fact that there are different ways of doing things. Applying chemicals to the ground is not feeding them. (laughs) That's applying chemicals to the ground. Yeah. It kills off the microorganisms in the ground. It's like if you took a bunch of, of grain alcohol and dumped it on the ground, it would kill off everything. Yeah, It's just not healthy. What you need to do is you need to work with the soil. You need to develop the soil. You need to make it into something that harbors microorganisms and feeds plants. Because the thing is, the, the microorganisms, the, the fungi that are in the soil, they're what do most of the work for the plants. Because the plants actually depend on them to carry nutrients through the soil to their roots. So when we do the the sorts of agricultural practices that we do, especially monoculture, which is just horrible, it uh, you know completely depletes the soil. You have to do rotations, but I mean that's not really a solution. The solution is growing plants intermingled with each other so that they they support each other, mm-hmm. which is what's described in permaculture. So I, I think that there's a lot to be gleaned from a lot of these different types of agriculture and, you know, taking bits and pieces from each one and trying to integrate them together and find new ways to account for, you know, the growth patterns after disruption and account for the soil and account for the way the land is used and how that affects the water. You know, there's a lot of these things that haven't been entertained for a long time because there's a been a certain mindset and I'm, I'm hoping that you know that mindset's changing a little bit i mean just the fact that that book tending the wild by mcat anderson that i sent you was published you know that says a lot mm-hmm. yeah it does if you want to be positive that's definitely something to look at but 
man, we hear these quotes that I love about just all the abundance that was out there. It wasn't that long ago. How did we manage to fuck all this up in so little time? <laughs> well, really, by the beginning of the 19th, I mean, by the end of the 19th, going into the 20th century, without really much in the way of mechanistic, you know, assistance, European mindset alone had managed to wipe out most of everything. Hmm. Uh, we've, we've recovered quite a bit since then, actually. But yeah, it, it, in terms of the animal life anyway, but the, the vegetation to a large degree has been just development. Mm-hmm. It has a lot to do with mindset, basically. It didn't take a whole lot of sophistication for the the Europeans to to completely wipe out the carrier pigeon and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we're we're lucky that there have been some rules to hold back the complete decimation of our wild <laughs> our wild areas. But what we need to realize we need to do more than just prevent them from being destroyed mm-hmm. and just kind of replanting things here and there. And we really need to interact a lot more with the land in order to be able to get it back to where kind of where it was before, and maybe even better, mm-hmm. you know, start bringing in some of these other techniques that, that I'm talking about, like biodynamics and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to, I'd like to start talking about that a little bit. If we can. Yeah. That was actually my next note here. The only other thing I was going to say to kind of add to your points there was that in one of these videos I was watching that kind of gets into this material in preparation for today, they're reading from the writings of a Native American, like some journal of some type, and he says, I really just don't get these people. They cut down massive trees to build these structures, and then all winter long they burn wood in every room of every building that they build, and it's just extremely wasteful, and it won't be sustainable. And Sure enough, it isn't. But I thought that was just a a great point. I can only imagine Native Americans seeing this completely alien way of of doing everything and just watching it rape and pillage their surroundings. And, you know, these white people are like, isn't this better? Look how awesome this is. And Yeah. Aren't you happy? We we gave you pots and pans and, 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 you know, knives. Isn't that wonderful? It's like. We had pots and pans and knives before, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just God, imagine how crazy that would be. So, Give me my land back. <laughs> yeah, right on. So, right, you said you wanted to also discuss biodynamic agriculture and, I guess, Rudolf Steiner's alchemically derived agriculture system. What's going on with this stuff that you also sent me? So, basically, it's a way of sowing and reaping and basically coming up with a cyclic look at the way that different plants interact with the environment. So what he's talking about is the lo- kind of the longitudinal waves, the, uh, the orgone energy from the sun, as it were, as that interacts with the earth, he tries to draw the, the correct energies that are being emanated and channeled through, you know, the astrological interactions with planets and the lensing of those waves down to the earth and things like that. Hmm. It's like the Zodiac. They use the Zodiac to plan when they're going to plant and things like that. And they also use it for making these preparations where the preparations are planted at a certain time 
And so what it'll be is it'll be cow manure in a horn, or it'll be an herb in a horn, or it'll, it might also be silica, which is quartz in a horn, and it'll be buried underground. And then the energy that is being absorbed by the earth from the longitudinal energy is, is being concentrated by the horn in the ground into this material. So it, it I think it, you know, especially the, the quartz preparation, I think that it helps to focus orgone through the, the uh, resonant cavity effect that Victor Grabenikoff found. And it also helps to concentrate orgone as well. Mm-hmm. Into the material. I mean, I mean, orgone, organite. I mean, not organite. Um, what, what is it? The uh, little powder. Um, Ormus. Ormus. Ormus into there. Huh. So that maybe that's why that guy was discovering Ormus. Like, what? That was so weird. Because to go back to uh, you know all the gold you can eat, they didn't yeah. really get into why he he found this stuff. It just seemed like he found this stuff Ormus in his field, and he started doing all this weird testing on it. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Like I said before, it goes between the land and the water and the air. It's everywhere. So I think that the horn and and the because the horn it's full of all these you know, it's a bone it's full of all these cavities uh-huh. and so i think all those little cavities are helping to to concentrate the flow of this etheric energy in, into there and then the horn shape that's also like a phi a phi curve mm-hmm. you know if, you, if you're familiar with the golden ratio yeah i think that that helps the energy go into a phi or or like a, a life positive sort of flow the shape of the horn because it looks like kind of like the shell yeah it has that same kind of ratio built into it so it, it, i think that that's kind of helping the energy flow through there and it gets it helps to concentrate because i i think that ormus is caught up in this stuff and so when you when you have it being concentrated and flowing it helps to concentrate it into what you have in there hmm. like biohacking the rules of our 3d environment yeah, kind of. I mean, is there much of a historical precedence for, for this biodynamic agriculture? This is a, a recent thing, right? A fairly recent thing? Well, it was developed by Rudolf Steiner, who was like late 19th, early 20th century. And he, this was all based off of his, basically his spirit site. Hmm. He saw things in other worlds, so to speak, growing up. And then he, he went to school and he got a doctorate and, you know, started writing about this stuff. But he was basically someone who wanted to understand the spiritual in a scientific context. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know enough about Rudolf Steiner, obviously. Seems like an interesting guy in that Wilhelm Reich wheelhouse, kind of. Yeah, well, um, you know, Rudolf Steiner, I would say that he... The group that he started was called Anthroposophy. It, it was basically an outreach of the Theosophy movement. Well, not an outreach. I'd say a kind of a you know splinter off of them. Mm. Because when the Theosophists said that Krishnamurti was reincarnation of Jesus, I think, then that's when he kind of split off. Gotcha. Yeah, I've got a Krishnamurti magnet on my refrigerator right now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I always thought the Theosophists were a bit wacky, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a bit down more with the uh, Anthroposophists. Yeah, you're not alone in that in that thought. I've had quite a few guests kind of say that. Yeah, right on. So, 
I guess this biodynamic agriculture, it it is super interesting. I mean, what else can be said about it? Has it ever been used in a real widespread fashion? Oh, it's very widespread in Australia of all places, actually. Huh. Because they have such horrible soil down there. They've used to develop their soil in a lot of places. Um, there were a few people who started to advocate it. I think it was during the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's when it had to have been because that's... I think he started to give his talks about it during the 20s. I think it was like maybe the 60s or the 80s they started to really take off there. There's a lot There's a lot of biodynamic farming down there. Huh. And, uh, I mean, they're, they're using quartz? Yeah. So, um, like I said in the previous episode, quartz is actually, and crystals, are actually kind of like a little nest for ormus materials to get trapped. And so... I think that the reason why they're using the quartz in there is that they're kind of supercharging the quartz with ormus materials in the horn as it's buried, and it's getting kind of a flavor from the from the flows of etheric energy that are going through it, and then that is basically being mixed with water and sprayed on the fields. And what that does, I think, is the quartz kind of, in a homeopathic way, it structurizes the water because the thing is the water it has the strong bonds between the hydrogen and the oxygen but it's it's a it's a polar molecule mm-hmm. so that means it has a positive and negative side itself so that molecule can be arranged like magnets in different structures and so when you have um, electromagnetic fields when you have contaminants in the water when you when you have stuff that's mixed with it it's going to retain a flavor of that, even if that material is removed, because it's affected the, the weaker bonds in the water. Mm-hmm. That has a, that, that's what we talk about when we're talking about water structure. Hmm. And so if you put quartz in one of these horns and bury it, I mean, you also mentioned they're spraying you know, affected water on this, but how large of an area does that affect? From what I understand, the, I can't remember the ratios. Let me see. I might have it open somewhere on here the cloud cow horn silica it's a mixture of one gram to 13 liters of water per acre so one gram of this stuff is good for an acre damn when you mix with water and that i mean it it let's see the spray enhances photosynthesis of the leaf and as such complements the activity of the preparation bd500 which is another one of the preparations they make which works mostly on the root zone of the plant. It also strengthens the, strengthens the plant against some fungus attack, rots in passion fruit, and rust on coffee and rice. So mm. it, it it basically helps it to uh, photosynthesize better. It's kind of like polar feeding. It gets absorbed by the pores of the plant. Right. So if this is so effective, you know, why wouldn't the corporate farming industry just use it also? Because they're, you know, profit at any cost. They don't care what you know, what gets them there? Well, I mean, there's a lot of skepticism around it. I mean, it really, it's not the corporations because the corporations typically are not the farmers. The farmers are typically individuals and they base it off of what they think will happen. And most people are skeptical. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there was a large movement by by biodynamic farmers in Australia to, to educate others. So that was effective there. But um, 
most people are just they just don't believe it'll work they're afraid of pests <laughs> they're afraid of their losing a crop would destroy them because of the way we've got everything financed right now and they have to have they have to be able to make payments on all this equipment to be able to spray the stuff and it's it's really a wasteful wasteful system and, and it's wasteful not just of of material resources of fuel of uh, but also of human life, because a lot of these farmers, if, if they do have a bad year, and increasingly, even with the genetic, you know, manipulation and the chemicals and everything else, the soil is becoming so depleted that there are many more diseases that are cropping up even with all that stuff, and they can't stop it. It adapts faster than they can deal with it at this point. Mm-hmm. Man. And so to switch gears a little bit here, I'm always interested in magic and the methods of the ancients. And that's why Native Americans are also so interesting because they're still living fragments of that way of life to some degree. You'd think the elders might know some of that stuff still, as opposed to other cultures who are just completely gone. And when it comes to Native Americans, probably the most widely known ritual is the rain dance. And it's presented today as superstition, but you do seem to think not only that it worked, but you might have some insights into how, right? Yeah. Um, so the rain dance, basically what it was, was it was a ritual where a shaman and a group of people would, you know, they'd, they'd dance, they'd go into a trance, and they would be trying to summon the forces of rain. And from the evidence of uh, Wilhelm Reich with his, um, you know, rain system that he developed, mm-hmm. and also harp, there is evidence that that's possible. And both of those systems are using this longitudinal energy I've been talking about. Yeah. There's evidence from not just brain dance, but also, you know, all these other spiritual experiences that the human body and the human mind is capable of reproducing those effects, reproducing longitudinal waves, creating levitational effects, creating effects that couldn't be accounted for by normal interactions in space time as we think of it. And uh, the way I think that that happens is, you know, I'd, I'd like to kind of go a bit into the kind of the chain of custody for information, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So we have our conscious mind, which is the mind that everybody thinks of, and that's kind of what they identify as themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's the realm of the ego, and that that would be kind of considered to be you know the the left half of your brain and it's it's more of a serial system you think about one thing at a time plotting to the next thing and you think that that's a very efficient way to think most of the time but actually you know i mean you've got this other side of your brain the subconscious which is you know mostly what people deal with in the realm of dreams and things like that it's the artistic mind if you're an artistic person then you deal a lot with your your right side of your mind, symbolism, or relationships between things, that sort of a thing. And then there's the unconscious mind. And the conscious and the subconscious are kind of, they deal together through the corpus callosum, which is this connective tissue between the two hemispheres of your head. And then they also deal with the, uh, the limbic system and the spinal column. And the limbic system and the spinal column are basically the unconscious mind. Mm -hmm. And the 
left half is serial processing one thing at a time. The right half is parallel processing, which means that it processes a lot of things at once. Like when your subconscious is looking at something, it doesn't see any one thing specifically. It's looking at all the relationships between everything. It has a lot more bandwidth, but in terms of the operations it can do, your, your, your conscious mind is capable of going methodically through a lot of steps, a lot of operations, but your subconscious mind is very limited in the sorts of operations why you know when you get dream imagery it's it's hard to tell exactly what's being conveyed because it's a very simple message but it's conveyed symbolically so that's kind of the dream speak from your subconscious is kind of how how we're usually interacted with by our subconscious mind and then the unconscious mind it, it deals more in feelings and your subconscious kind of interprets those feelings and hands them off to the conscious mind in, in, in a symbolic form. And so the unconscious mind in your, in your limbic system, in your spinal cord, the spinal cord is acting as the, the receptive portion. It's getting all this information from your organs and things like that. And the limbic system is, is acting as the projecting portion. It's, it's, Basically, you know, releasing all these hormones and all these regulators for your, your synaptic functions and things like that, and your different regulating compounds for your organs. And, you know, there's a similar effect with your conscious mind as well. The conscious mind, the uh, left half of your brain is the more expressive, the more projecting portion. And then your right half of your brain is constantly receiving information. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this male and female aspect to your conscious and your unconscious mind. And I think what happens is the unconscious mind is actually interacting with all of these organs and things like that. So it's acting at a cellular level. It's acting at a kind of a holistic level. And I think that the way that these longitudinal waves are being generated is through the mitochondria of our DNA. And so when people are able to go into these trance states, they're able to, to convey information past the subconscious mind to the unconscious mind, and they're able to open up a flow of information there. Hmm. And so that's where you get these trance states where they're able to see things they can't see otherwise because they're actually connected through these longitudinal waves to this other spiritual realm. And they're able to interact with it and they're able to generate these effects in our realm as well, where you're able to manipulate weather, you're able to, you know, alter the, the weight of a person and the weight of objects and telekinesis and all this, all this weird stuff. Yeah. It seems to match up with the effects of this longitudinal energy. That's what I think basically is a chain of custody. And the, the last chain there, the, you know, the link between the, cellular and the and the unconscious mind that's kind of been developed by this fellow let me find his name Stuart Hameroff okay Stuart Hameroff is a professor of um I think he's an anesthesiologist and a professor at the University of Arizona he basically developed a uh theory where he felt that there was there was a mechanism for cells to interact on a quantum level and 
that seems to have been demonstrated by some of the research that was presented in uh, some Google talks on quantum biology, where they're talking about how there's actually quantum states that are being imposed on the microtubules of our cells as they're operating. And the microtubules of the cells are basically the nervous system of the cell. So if there's quantum information there, that means that you're able to interact at a non-local level. You're interacting with a non-local field mm -hmm. and you're, you're able to transmit information instantaneously and all this other mm -hmm. stuff. But I think that, you know, what we call quantum is actually kind of the after effects of this longitudinal etheric energy. Hmm. So that makes sense. Wow, man. Well, hell of a lot of new information. I love it. I really appreciate you bringing this stuff to light. I really like your alchemical tie-in approach and breaking it up by the elements because I think that's just a great way to categorize these things. I mean, it's just a fun way to do it. I think it makes a lot of sense for people. It's easily approachable. I really like today's, especially with examples like the Findhorn Garden and biodynamic agriculture. That stuff's pretty interesting. Uh, anything else to drop on the people before I cut you loose? No, not really. I mean, it's great to be on as always. And uh, I just want to um, be able to kind of tie the ether physics outlook into other aspects of, you know, life and just kind of seeing how it filters through these other weird topics. Yeah. You know, the, these other things that otherwise it's inexplicable because there's no theory to kind of shine a light onto it. And I think that as I started to research the ether theory, I think that it has a lot of strong points to support things that otherwise are inexplicable. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I, it's really great to have a platform like your show to be able to talk about this stuff and kind of get it out there. You know, one of the things that Rudolf Steiner says is you can do research and, and things for yourself, but once you do, it's kind of your responsibility to get it out there mm -hmm. and let other people know about it. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do is just, you know, I've, I've been doing this research for a while. I've started to make some big, big connections, I think. And I just want to get it out there so that other people can benefit from it. And uh, I feel like it's my responsibility. Yeah, well said. And it is a very unique approach. I think you're doing great stuff. And I appreciate being thought of as a, a great place to walk through it. So definitely, definitely. <laughs> have a good one. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Have a good one. Bye -bye. All right, man. All right, people. There we have it. The triumphant return of the Shaman Janeer. I really loved this show, especially as it got going 20, 30, 40 minutes in, because I think a lot of the stuff starts to click around that point. But the fact that Shaman Janeer has researched so many bright, forgotten minds, knows so much about ether physics, and is able to apply that template pretty effortlessly in multiple areas... It is really impressive to me, and I do feel lucky to have him as a recurring guest for the Ether Physics Perspective. Because I don't want to just follow conspiratorial trends. You know, if something big happens, yeah, we'll talk about it. But I'd rather get into content that I rarely ever hear about, but still sounds like it makes sense. This is one of those shows for me. Maybe Native American permaculture practices, landscape management, and engineered abundance aren't the most mind-blowing topics to everyone. 
But isn't it sort of fun to visualize a completely different way of living and to consider their highly effective processes in comparison to corporate factory farms and all the waste along the way? I've heard people say that one of the biggest crimes against humanity the elite pulled in the last century was driving us into agricultural ignorance, that when we lost the ability and knowledge to feed ourselves, we lost everything. If you've ever just had a few fruit trees on your property, it is crazy how much they yield. But many of us have been so economically fucked that we can't afford land for a couple fruit trees. A show like this does make me consider moving back to the Midwest, buying some secluded acreage, the Midwest being the only place I could afford to do that, and then trying to resurrect some of these old practices, create Carlwood Gardens, and get my alchemy on. It's an idea. But maybe some of these topics were inspiring to anyone looking to get off the grid or work towards a sustainable lifestyle. You might try some of these lost arts. It's funny because a big theme on the higher side a few months ago was the realms of secret science or hidden physics. And some people sort of explain it with torsion and counter-rotation, but ether physics really unlocks a lot more. It also explains the alchemy concept way better than it being just an analogy for the spiritual path of enlightenment. I do kind of think putting it in that box is a way of saying, well, I don't understand that, so I'm just going to say it was all symbolic and metaphorical. And I'm sure it can be that, but I think the real alchemical science creates the basis for there to be analogies about the spiritual path. Not that it's primarily metaphoric, if that makes sense. Either way, I hope you liked this one. Hopefully we didn't get too deeply under the skin of listeners who have been swept away in that alt-right crowd. I know that comes up mainly in the Plus Show, that stuff, but still, it used to be completely non-controversial to talk about all the damage, death, and destruction that came with European expansion and the Inquisition and the nexus of royalty and the papacy and their various conquests, but you know how, like, you can talk shit about your alcoholic brother and it's no big deal, but when someone else does it, it's like, whoa now, dude, hey, that is my family you're talking about. There seems to be this new attitude about European ancestors, at least around me, where talking about their crimes is kind of like talking shit on my people, bro. I don't know, it's a weird type of thing that I've been seeing lately, that's all. One positive, semi-related thing I did hear the other day was in reference to the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been there, it's awesome. It's pretty underdeveloped, fairly undisturbed. And the story goes that a lot of folks wanted to move in and put casinos and hotels and resorts all along the ridges. Of course they did. And Roosevelt came in and said, no, we got to preserve this place. In fact, the quote is pretty well known, I think. But what he actually said was, in the Grand Canyon, Arizona has a natural wonder which is in kind absolutely unparalleled throughout the rest of the world. I want to ask you to keep this great wonder of nature as it now is. I hope you will not have a building of any kind, not a summer cottage, a hotel, or anything else to mar the wonderful grandeur, the great loneliness and beauty of the canyon. Leave it as it is. You cannot improve on it. The ages have been at work on it, and man can only mar it. And that is amazing, really. I only wish it applied to a few other locations in our system in general. Native Americans probably didn't have it perfect, but can you imagine Western masonry and technological and industrial ingenuity, especially if it was unshackled from oil and closed-circuit electric? 
And the Teslas and the Reichs and the Thomas Townsend Browns were actually maximized to their fullest potential. Imagine all that, merging with a synergistic relationship with the earth and environment, engineered abundance and a society embedded in nature, rather than paving over it. And of course, a full exploration and implementation of the suppressed natural sciences and ether physics, if we'd only just step back and assess the best elements of everything and remove the roadblocks like the Rockefeller oil-only policy and, fuck it, let's go for the gold, a fiat currency-clad debt-based system of rule, imagine what life could really be like. Imagine if we could somehow manage to implement those just five or six tweaks. It'd be a different fucking world, guys. It really would. And that's why we explore these things. You want to get an accurate idea of the playing field and how it's been worked against you, not so you can have an excuse for your mediocre life and pointless cog-in-the-wheel job. Some people do think that way. Oh, well, the school system fucked me, the Rockefellers fucked me, and so that's why I work at White Castle, and why even try? No, it, it isn't about that. It is about getting a handle on the landscape so you can navigate it better and escape those traps and dig out of all those carefully crafted trenches you can spend a lifetime trudging through. It's not a fair system, but we do want to look at it honestly, don't we? A bit of a tangent, but that's just one question I get a lot. People say, how do you handle it? Do you ever get defeated or depressed? How do you go on? Well, I go on because fuck them. Quitting the job they wanted me to have and instead making a career out of exploring things they've swept under the rug or tried to suppress or lied about has been pretty fucking lucrative for me. So I guess I should thank them for giving me so much material and regulating their airwaves to things like Downton Abbey and Dance Moms. But what does that have to do with anything? Bringing it back, if you like the first hour here and the second hour, Shimonjanir breaks down our galactic positioning and magic ability, the Black Crow and the stages of the Philosopher's Stone, anti-aging studies in the alchemy connection, Egypt, alchemy and life extension, the different philosophies of survival, and then of course the alt-right movement, nationalism, and this whole thing being a product of the deep state, the strategy of tension. And I agree with a lot of his points in that area. That's why I say you can't get invested in either side. And we talked about early American, pretty fringe, interesting archaeological discoveries that don't fit the official narrative. Things like pyramids in the Grand Canyon, unearthed Jesuit artifacts, all fun stuff. But when we're talking about the geopolitical landscape and Shimonjanir says something like, those Muslim laws, they're going to be coming out at some point. I should give him a little extra credit because he said that before the travel ban controversy. We recorded this a little before then, and you can say that some of that applied for sure. I just wanted to throw that out there without having much else to say about any of that stuff, because he should get a gold star for that. But don't get too attached to any particular worldview, I would say. And if everyone around you starts having the same ideas, maybe rethink where you're getting them, which goes for everyone, including me. That said, I love you guys. I'm just a simple stoner dropout, not really an expert in anything. But I do know some people who are. So thanks for listening. Follow your dreams and keep your pimp hands strong. I've done my part. Your move, secret science suppressors, indigenous knowledge destroyers, and agents of the alchemical quarantine. Your fucking move. 
lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a steady sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'll be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'll be invited By a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth To the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench From the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare Of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats (laughs) 